listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Genesis, I mean, excuse me, Exodus chapter 3. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Exodus 3. Uh, if you don't have one, there's some in the foyer. You can grab one or they'll be on the screen. Really encourage you as best as you can to bring your copy of the scriptures or the app on your phone every week. It'll be, you get more out of it as you're following along in the scriptures and I just think that I'm making something up as we go. One of our, uh, one of my favorite uh, books in the Chronicles of Narnia, I love them all, but with different kind of levels and at different times, but one of my favorite, it's kind of one that's lesser known, it's called The Horse and His Boy. Um, and it follows this, this, you know, young man Shasta and his talking horse Bree, if you're familiar with Narnia, and, and the kind of the adventures they go on. And, and all these coincidences happen around cats and lions. And so there's one scene where it's two lions and they chase, they're chasing Bree and they're chasing Shasta. And, and because of the way they were getting chased, they happen to meet the other protagonists in the story. And then they go on journeying together. And there's another scene where He's in these tombs and he's kind of nervous. He's sleeping at night and he's on the run. And there's a little cat that comes up and sits in his lap and kind of comforts him through that. And another scene when he's running to race to, to warn the king of the incoming invasion and there's a lion that's chasing him and it gives his horse an extra spurt of energy at the end to get there in time. And, but it, yet it wounds his partner and takes her out of the picture. And, and there's all these scenes. And then finally in the great you know, climactic scene at the end, Shasta is talking to a voice and he doesn't know who the voice is. He can't see, but he hears the voice. He starts complaining. He's like, there's just so many lions. Isn't it just awful how many lions I ran into? And the voice says, there was only one lion, but he was swift of foot. He says, what do you mean there was only one? I told you there was two there and there was this and there was that. And he says, I know because I was the lion. He's like, I was the one who chased you so that you would meet uh, your prote- other, the other partner in crime, that I was the one who comforted you as the cat in the tombs. I was the one that you were sleeping, you didn't even know it. I was protecting you from the jackals. I was the one who gave the horses an extra burst of energy to get to the king on time. I was even the one, you don't remember this, that when you were a baby and you were placed in a boat and, and just left to die, that pushed the boat to shore so that someone would find you. I was the lion. And what was clear is throughout this whole story, you thought all these coincidences were happening, but Aslan was with him the entire way, directing and in control of all the circumstances. And after revealing that, he finally reveals himself to Shasta. He comes out and and Shasta can see him. And, And Lewis captures this image so well, he says this, that no one ever saw anything more terrible or more beautiful. Great line. And, and this chapter we're going to look at today, it, it, that, that's the idea, that we've seen all these events that are going on and all these circumstantial things that have happened. And what we're going to see today is the lion is going to step from behind the curtain and reveal himself, that this is not just a bunch of stuff, that God has been behind this all the time. And as he reveals himself, he's going to now show his greatness, who he is, what he, what he is like. Uh, R.C. Sproul, one great Presbyterian pastor, went home to be with the Lord a couple years ago, was once asked, what is the greatest need in the American church? And he said, to know what God is like. To know what God is like. Today, we're going to see what is God 
like? It's kind of an important thing for us, right? As we worship, as we gather of the people of God to know what God is like. And here's what's significant. This chapter, it, it's, it's really, it's holy ground to use the author's words because this is not just what I think about God. This is what God reveals about himself. See, it doesn't matter what I think and we live in a culture, and even the church, well, my God would never do that, and I think this about God, and I think this about God, and we have our little thoughts about God. What you think about God really don't matter. But what God says about God matters. He defines himself. And so when he purposely reveals himself in a unique way, then his people ought to stand back and listen. And that's what he's going to do today, reveal his character and his nature and what he's like. Not everything that he is, but what he wants us to know in this chapter. He is revealing himself today. And I'm gonna highlight as we work through as best I can, eight kind of things, observations about the Lord, what he is like, who he is. Because remember, the theme of the book is that you would know that he is the Lord. We need to know what he is like, right, as his people. So that's where we're going. Um, just kind of a review of where we've been. If you're a guest, you haven't been here. So the people of Israel, the people of God have been enslaved uh, in Egypt for several hundred years. Uh, it seems like God doesn't care. It seems like he's doing nothing, but he's behind the curtain. He's behind the scene. He's directing and he's getting everything ready to come into place. Last week, we saw this with his man, his deliverer, Moses, his first 40 years. He spends in Egypt as the prince of Egypt. His next 40, he spends as the prince of sheep. Right, taking care of his uh, father-in-law's sheep, and he's been prepared, and now he is ready. He doesn't know he's ready, but in God's mind, he is ready to move, and God is going to reveal himself to him and to us as we continue in this chapter. So let me pick up in verse 25 of chapter two just to give us a running start. During those many days, the king of Egypt dies, so Pharaoh dies, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out to help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Notice the repetition in verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. And, and there's a repetition of this, this Hebrew word for God, Elohim, four times. God, 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 God. And that's significant because we're going to get a new name for God in this chapter as he's gonna reveal himself. But it's, it's highlighting, and maybe this is just, just something that some of you need to be reminded of. Maybe this is the whole point for you, that God sees, that God knows, that God hears, right? That's, that's who this God is. And so let's jump in verse one. Now Moses, and this is this way of saying, now back at the ranch, right? this is going on in God's point of view, but now back at the ranch, Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Mount Horeb. Another name for Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. That'll come into play later, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, right? And so here's Moses. Um, we'll start back, keep back here. Here's Moses waking up on this day like every other day. And remember, old boy is 80 years old now. And so he's probably come to terms with, this is my life, right? Taking care of sheep. This is what I do. He wakes up just like every other day. It's a Tuesday, it's a Thursday. Who knows what day it is? But he wakes up, got a little arthritis because he is 80 years old. He's probably thinking, I'm too old for this. this these sheep are driving me nuts, whatever. But he wakes up uh, just like any other day, not knowing that God is going to rock his world, right? Verse two, 
The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. Right, so he's, you know, walking on the side of the mountain, grazing, leading the sheep, whatever. And something out of the corner of his eye, he spots it and it, he does a double take. In fact, he wants you to see. He says, behold, look, I, I, this was strange. Not that something on fire in the wilderness is strange because that happens all the time. But here is a, a bush that is burning, but it's not stopping. It's just continually burning and it's not burning up. That's unique. Never seen that before. So I'm going to turn aside. I'm going to go see this thing, he doesn't know it's the angel of the Lord. And just a kind of quick summary, the angel of the Lord is God himself. I can go unpack that for you, but just t- trust me, the, the angel of the Lord is God. We're gonna see him identify himself as God in just a minute. And so he, God calls to him, verse four, when the Lord, see, the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, and your best Charlton Heston, 1950s verse, Moses. I don't think it was like that personally, but who knows? Why twice? This is not him calling roll like Bueller, Bueller. This is not that. All right. He is trying to get his attention. He wants him to know, yeah, you didn't mishear the bush. It's really me. I'm really talking to you. This is personal. I want you, Moses. And so Moses, thinking, am I losing my mind, says, here I am. One word in Hebrew. Hine. Here, right? Not knowing what is going on. And the first thing I want you to see about God is this. It's a significant piece. That our Lord, what is he like? He is an initiator. He initiates. This is God moving towards Moses. This is not Moses moving towards God. This is not Moses saying, I'm 80 years old. It's time for me to start getting spiritual. This is God out of nowhere saying, boom, I'm moving towards you, Moses. Initiating choosing. That is who he is. The initiating, the drawing God. If you are here this morning and you know God, you love God, you know anything about God, it is not because of you. It is because of God. It's because God has opened your eyes. It is because God has drawn you. No man or woman comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. And you may think, well, no, no, no. I, you know, I, I studied. I didn't. No. From your perspective, you thought you were seeking God, but really he was seeking you. Maybe you're here, you're a guest and someone like, someone invited me to church and promised me donuts and I don't have any donuts, but I'm sitting in church now. That's because God promised. He didn't lie to you about donuts. That was your friend, but he is drawing you. He is initiating, he is moving towards you because that's the type of God he is. He chooses. He is the initiator, right? And I'm reminded of the words of Spurgeon. Because we think often, oh God, of course God would choose me. I mean, I went to Georgia Southern. I got a 3.1. Why wouldn't he want me? It's not he chooses you because you're so great. He chooses you because he's so great. So Spurgeon, who was probably greater than most of us, said, if, if if, if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me after. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I could never find in myself why he should have looked upon me with a special love. It's because he is great. That's who he is. He is the initiating God. He graciously moves towards us in salvation. But I think also that God is constantly trying to get our attention and remind us and point us back to himself. And, and it's interesting to me in this text that, that God doesn't just kind of plop fire down in front of Moses. 
He doesn't put the fire right in front of where Moses is going to be. Where does he put it? Off to the side. Now he grabs his attention. And one of the greatest ways you can grab a man's attention is to burn something. Right? I mean, there's, I think there's theological significance, but I think there's practical significance. You want to see a man get attention? Burn something. Right? I said earlier, we were at a party on New Year's Eve and somebody brought a flamethrower and it was like all the men turned to eight-year-old boys and we almost, I'm surprised we made it out alive, but all these, let me try, you know, and everyone's shooting this thing like it's the predator, like, yeah, where is he, you know? It was awesome because men love fire, so God gets his attention, but he doesn't put it right in front of him. He puts it off to the side because I think there's a piece where, where God is going to get our attention, but we still have to respond. And I wonder in my own life, just practically speaking, how many times God is doing this over here and he's getting my attention, he's got things on fire and I miss it because I'm so driven and, and I'm so busy about doing my thing. And I think it's, it's, it's worth asking, is God trying to get your attention where you're at and you're just kind of like, oh, I got this thing, I got this degree, I got this job, I got this, this, I got this, this. And we, we miss what he's doing. That's why I think it's important. Where does, he, where does he reach out to Moses? While he's in the middle of nowhere around nobody. He's in the wilderness, on the backside of nowhere. When he has nothing to distract him except for a couple of sheep. And that's where God grabs his attention. And this is why I think silence and solitude is an important discipline for the people of God. That you would be willing, and I know this is hard for some of you, that you would be willing, maybe this week, to put your phone up for an hour, to turn off the radio and to turn off your news program, whatever news program that you're obsessed with and you can't stop watching that you would turn it off and you would get alone and open your Bible because it's living and active and God uses it to speak and say, here I am. And if you would be willing to listen and just read and think, what is God trying to get my attention with? All right, would you be willing to do that? Because how much are we missing uh, by not doing that? Right. And it's interesting that, that Moses, this is the first encounter he has with the living God. And, and by the end of his life, it says, no, Moses had the kind of relationship with God, this is a summary, that he spoke face to face with a friend. I mean, not a great statement. He's, no one, God spoke to no one like he spoke to Moses, like a buddy. That's a pretty awesome statement. Wouldn't it be awesome of you at the end? Or you, no, he had the relationship with God. They were, they were friends. They spoke, right? That he knew him well. That God is the initiator, that God moves towards us. Question is, are we listening? Are we watching? Let's continue. Verse five. So God says to him, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy. Why is it holy? Because God is there. And so as a sign of reverence, take off your shoes. Here's what's fascinating is that God is saying, come here, Moses. But he's saying, but not too close though. And verse six uh, he says, I am the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. And Moses hid his face that he is terrified. He is afraid. So God is inviting, but at the same time, he's like, not too close. It's why, this is why fire is a great illustration because there's something about fire that's warm and inviting and wants you to get kind of near. But at the same time, it's like not too near because if you get too near, you're gonna get burned. So there's a dangerous aspect, but there's also an inviting. Just like Lewis says, again, no one ever saw anything more beautiful or terrible, right? So take off your shoes because I am God and this is holy ground because I am here. And so he's afraid and he hides. And the second thing I want you to see about God, about the Lord, is that he is holy. He's holy. Not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. 
according to Isaiah. A threefold repetition. And the word for holy, it just means he's other. He is distinct. He is set apart. He is not like you. There's an otherness to God that, that, that we need to grasp, right? We cannot yawn when we hear holy, yeah. Hey, God's holy. Because we have this image, especially in the Western church, where we are considered the Western church, where there's no reverence, there's no awe. It's just God is, is just kind of Santa Claus and he's, you better watch out and you better not cry because I'm telling you, Santa Claus is coming down. All right, he's just kind of this big jolly guy or Jesus is my homeboy, right? We have that mentality and we lose the otherness, the, the awe and the majesty. Do you realize that when the people of God in the scripture come face to face with God in his holiness, they cannot handle it. Moses hides his face. Later on, he's going to ask God, God, show me your glory. God's going to be like, you can't handle the truth. He said, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in the, like a crack of a rock and I'm going to put my hand over your face and I'll protect you and I'm going to walk by and when I kind of get to the end, I'm going to pull my hand back and you can see my afterglow. You can handle that, barely. That's, that's Moses, right? When Isaiah is in the, has a vision of heaven, when God is there and the angels are there, he falls on his face and he hides. When James, Peter, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration and God the Father speaks, this is my son, they are terrified. When the apostle John in the book of Revelation comes face to face with the risen Christ, this is John who's laying his head on his shoulder. This is John who knows him better than anyone. He's his cousin. When he sees Christ, he falls on his face as a dead man. Why? Because he is other. He's distinct. And I know some of us think, well, that's just the Old Testament God, right? New Testament God is, is Jesus is my homeboy. The writer to Hebrews says that we are to offer God acceptable worship with reverence and all. Why? Because he is a consuming fire. In the word of, in the word of C.S. Lewis with Aslan, is, is he safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king. And it's important that we, we get back to that view. Here's why. Because it impacts our worship. Because when we come in here and we just like, whatever, firm foundation, cornerstone, one's a song over, I hate singing. It impacts, if, if God is majestic and great and big, we're gonna sing. If he's kind of like a little, you know, little kitten that doesn't care, what are we gonna do? When's Fowler getting done? It's 11 o'clock service. That's right, you guys get the longest sermon of the day. Congratulations, you always do. But are you here to hear Fowler? I don't wanna hear from Fowler, P teacher. I wanna hear from, it's just God's word. Is there a reverence and all a hunger? It, it impacts that. It impacts your life. If you have this distant God who doesn't really care, then you know what? It doesn't matter if you're, you're sleeping with your boyfriend, your girlfriend. It doesn't matter if you have a couple extra glasses, a couple extra this and that, because my life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I do a good job at work. It doesn't matter how I treat other people. It doesn't matter because my God's not holy. He doesn't care. He's not watching. He's not near. But when you understand who he is and he does care and it does matter and he does say, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that you shall be holy for I am holy. When those things, when you grasp that, that changes this. It changes the urgency of the mission of God. 
If it's not a big deal. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, it is the fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The mission of God matters because people are under the wrath and need to know about Christ. And if, if there's no holiness, if there's no bigness, then it's just like, I'm on my mission. I want to make money. I want to be happy. I want to have a house. I want to, be, I want to get my next this, 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 this. And we ignore the mission of God. Interestingly enough, when Isaiah is hiding his face and holy, 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 and he's just like hiding like a dead man, and God says, who's going to go for us? Isaiah's like, here I am, send me. Because there's something about seeing God that puts him on the mission of God and it's his delight instead of just like this dread. So holiness of God matters and we need to grasp it. The bigness, the otherness. But it's interesting, he doesn't leave it there. Not only is he holy and distinct, but he is also near. And again, this is why fire is significant. There's danger, don't get too close, but also come close. Look what God says in verse seven through nine. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down. I love that image. I've, it's like, dad, don't make me come down there. No, I'm coming down. Is God really coming down like he's walking down the stairs? It's a, it's a figure of speech. But it's a figure of speech that's designed for us to grasp what he's doing. He uses the same figure of speech in Genesis when the people have built this Tower of Babel and think they're all that because we made a building. Yay! A building. Look how great we are. And God says, hey, I'm coming down to see it. <laughs> right? I'm going to deal with these, these knuckleheads who think they're so great because they can build a little building. All right? That's the idea. I know I am engaged. I am there. I am near. Right? And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, all the ites. And verse nine, and now behold, the cry of the people has come to me. I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. See, there's a sense in which God is distant and he is, he is holy and separate, but there's also a sense in which he is near. And then we need, we need the tension of that. We need them both. I need a, because if he's just this, this distant, holy, big, fast God, then I'm just gonna tread my whole life walking on eggshells, hoping that he doesn't smite me for something. But he says, no, no, I, I am holy, but I am also near, and there's an invitation to come. I am close. I am associated with pain. I, I move towards the hurting. I know he is above us, but yet he is among us. It's a, it's, a, it's a piece of how he reveals himself. He intimately knows your situation. He cares more than you do. If he cares, he's, Jesus says, look, your heavenly father knows what you need. He, he knows about the birds. He takes care of the little, little birds. We got these birds we take care of every year, same birds. These little Carolina wrens go back and they build a nest in our garage, uh, right in our little garage door opener. So we, you know, we leave... This, this is not as much me as my spouse. But we leave the garage door half open now so these birds can come and go like they're part of the family or something. I don't even know. And now we can, you can rob our house if you want because we have wrens that we take care of, right? Because you just sneak in. It, it, but we take care of these little birds. And it reminds me, no, God's taking care of those birds. He takes care of you. He knows your depression that you're wrestling with and your anxiety over that and how you lost your job or, or you've been downsized or you didn't get into the school you wanted to when you wanted to, that you're on, on the wait list over here, that you're longing to be married, that you're longing to have children, that you've been disappointed, but you've been hurt. He, he knows. 
And he cares more than, more than you do. That the reality is that God's desire to bless us is greater than our desire to be blessed. And I know that sounds weird. It sounds very, you know, prosperity gospel. But God has proved that he is so willing to bless us that he has taken on a, he grew a body. He became a person, a man. He lived a life and he offered himself willingly as a sacrifice. How willing is God the Father to bless you? So much so that he crushed his own son for you to make you a child of God. And the reason we don't believe that God wants to bless us more than he wants to, his desire to bless us is because we, just, we define blessing differently. We want to define it as X and give me this and we want God on our payroll and we can tell him what to do. And, and James says, the reason you, you don't get is because you ask with crazy purposes. You're asking for the wrong thing. But God has demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us and he blesses us and we need to have these two truths these truths together if you get nothing else the holiness of God but yet the invitation of God and it needs to be just really part of our encounter even as we worship we come in here with confidence but we come in not like woo look at me I'm great we come with humility because why we come in the mercy we still need God's mercy and his grace but we don't have to be terrified because he has made it safe He's made it safe. But that's so we don't lose the awe and the majesty and we talk and sing and worship him as he is worthy of it. And we don't just kind of flippantly, but we don't have to fear because of what he's done. It's a great a picture of who he is. So he initiates, he is holy, he is near. Continue, verse 10. God tells Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring out my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh. If you would have asked him 40 years earlier, I want you to deliver my people. You know what Moses said? Let's roll. I got this. Which is why he makes him wait 40 years. Right? Now he's not ready. He feels he's not ready, but he actually is, ironically. Who am I? Should I go to, they actually go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Egypt, Israel out of Egypt. And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be your sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And, and real quick, Moses asked an irrelevant question, a dumb question to God. Who am I? You, sometimes people say, oh, there's no such thing as a dumb question. It's a dumb question. Because Moses is irrelevant here, right? He, the question is not, yeah, God was not like, oh, you're right. I, I, I kind of underestimated you, sorry. His point is, I wasn't thinking you were gonna do it. But he said, I will be with you. This is what's gonna happen. I will be with you. Here's what I want you to grasp. Real quick, and we're gonna cover more of this next week, but here's a significant piece about our God, that our Lord delights to use his people. He delights to use his people. And, and this side of the cross, he uses his church. Ephesians 3, 10, uh, God says that, that he is made known, he's making known the manifold wisdom of God through the church. And, and I know you have to realize if you're thinking, man, are we the best he's got? Nope. You ain't even close. You got cut from the team. That's how unclose you is. But yet he delights to use his church. He delights to use Moses, a murderer, to make him deliverer. What does that say for you? If you're like, ah, oh, yeah, but I can't. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. You got excuses. Next week, we're gonna deal with your excuses. That really answers the question, who am I next week? Here's what I want you to grasp though, that God is a God of second chances and fifth chances and hundredth chances. 
and he delights and he chooses, for some odd reason, he chooses to use his church to make his name known. That's what he does. That is your job. That's why you are sent. All right, let's continue. Verse 13. So Moses said, okay, let's, let's suppose we do this thing. If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What do I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. There's a lot there, right? This is a familiar passage maybe to some of us. You got the old 1950, I am, right? And there's a lot, there's a deep, that's kind of a big idea. Moses is like, hey, who do I tell them? Just tell them I am who I am. Or you could say I is who I is. It could be translated, right? Even I be, I like, I be who I be. And that's like, that's a weird name, right? And Elohim's clearer. I am who I am. What does that even mean? It means a lot of things, right? Uh, it's a loaded theological statement. Let me give you three big ones because this is who the Lord is. Number one, the biggest thing probably is what it means is that, that he is the only God. When he says, I am who I am, it's his way of saying, I am God and there is no other. And this is gonna be significant as they go back to Egypt. And you know, the reason why we have 10 plagues is because each plague is gonna be an assault on one of the Egyptian deities where God is saying, I'm, this is the, I'm beating you. This, this is the true God versus the false God. And he's, and he's gonna take out every single one of his gods, ending with who? Pharaoh himself, who was considered a God. Every one of them. Showing that I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no other gods. All the gods of the world are fake. That's the idea. It's like if I call one of my kids, let me illustrate it this way. If I call one of my kids, call my daughter, and, and I call her cell phone, and someone else picks up, and I say, hey, can I, can I talk to Susu, please? Uh, may I ask who's calling? Well, well this is her father. Which father? The only father. The one who pays the $500 Verizon bill every month. Put her on the phone. That's the idea. It's, uh, th he's the only one. There is no other. And, and that's significant because you'll hear this. College students, you need to know this. Younger folks, that you hear this. Oh, we all worship the same God. It's just a different manifestation, blah, blah, blah. There's this whole elephant illustration where, oh, you're reaching at the leg and you're grabbing the tail. It's, it's bogus. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Right? All the religions of the world cannot all be true. They can all be false, but they cannot all be true. Okay, you cannot say, well, you know, uh, the, you know, the Muslims worship the same God as the Buddhists who worship the same God as the Christians. Okay, if we worship the same God as the Buddhists, then the tree is God and the grass is God. Jesus, he says, I am the only God. So that one can't be true and this one true. And Islam has this, this distant God who doesn't really care about you, who doesn't have a, a savior who dies for your sins. So it cannot be the same as our God. They can all be not true, but they can't all be true. And, and this God says, I am the one true God. Me, the Lord, Yahweh, right? He is the only God. You need to grasp that. 
Uh, that's what he's saying in I am. Another thing he's saying in I am is that he is self-existent. I am who I am. Interestingly, when God refers to himself, he calls himself I am. But he says in verse 15, say this to the people, that the Lord, that's the, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. And you notice in your Bible, when you see all those capital letters, I've told you this before, in the Old Testament, when you see all those little capital letters, that is the English translation trying to communicate to you, this is the covenant name of God. This is Yahweh. And, and Yahweh is actually a third person singular, where, where I am who I am is first person. So when God speaks of himself, he says, I am. When his people speak of him, we say, he is. That's the significance there. He is. That's what Yahweh is. He is. But the idea is that he is self existing, that he is independent, that he needs nothing. He's not lonely. He's not worried. He doesn't lack anything. He depends on nothing. Everything else that has ever been is dependent on something. Everything has a start. The universe, uh, the angels, the demons, us. There's a creation point. We were dependent on something. God is not. He, he, is, he just is. And eternity passed. He was. He is. He will always be. He does not need. He was not lonely. Do you realize there was a time when the only thing that was was God? And he was just fine. He wasn't like, man, when are we going to create something here? He was, not only did he exist, he just, eternity passed. It, it, it boggles your mind. That's, that's how he, he just is. At some point he creates and we don't know why except for, for his glory. But he is a God who does not need. This is why it's important for us. Because if you're going to put your eggs in a basket, you're going to put all your trust and your hope in something, you better put it in something that doesn't need anything. That's self-sufficient. There's a scene in the original, this is for all the older folks, the original Superman movie with Christopher Reeve when Superman finally comes out and he's flying and he goes to the phone booth and, and she's falling from the sky and, and he kind of, you know, goes up and he catches her. And he's like, and he says to her, easy miss, I've got you. And she says, you got me? Who's got you? And she looks down and he's like all smiling, like no one gets me. Why? Because he's Superman. No one has to get him. That's the idea with God. Who has God? God has God. He don't need no one to get him. He gets himself. And that's the one I'm going to roll with. Especially when I'm talking about living forever and life after death. I want the one who's been there and is not dependent on anything. He is self-sufficient and he is unchanging. The idea, this the, the kind of theological word for this is he's immutable. Doesn't change. What he was, he is. What he is, he will always be. Alpha, omega, beginning, and the end. Before time, in time, after time. He is. He is. And that matters for a couple reasons. Because that means uh, what he says is true is true forever. Right? Truth is not relative. Truth is not in the eye of the beholder. Truth is truth. God says this is truth. God says this is sin. If it was sin a hundred years ago and a thousand years ago, guess what? Still sin. Doesn't matter what government teachers, PhDs tell you. Sin is sin. If God says it's sin, it's still sin. Now, does God deal with people in different ways than he did in the Old Testament? Yes, they couldn't eat shrimp. They couldn't eat bacon. Not because pigs and shrimp are evil, because he was trying to make something, a distinction for his people and the world. Now the distinction is that Christ is in us so we can eat shrimp, praise God, and we can have bacon, praise God, doubly. 
But, but those things which are part of the, not the ceremonial law, but the moral law, sin is still sin. Sin is still sin. Sexual immorality, sin. Drunkenness, still sin. Pride, still sin. Selfishness, still sin. Right? So if God says it, it matters. Another reason that his immutability, his unchangeableness matters is because that means he keeps his promises. If you go through the rest of the chapter, we don't have time to look at it, but verse 16 through the end of the chapter, he's gonna tell them what's gonna happen. Go gather Israel, say to them, the Lord your God of your fathers has appeared to me. Boom, they're gonna, they're gonna believe you. They do. And, and, and Pharaoh, he's not gonna believe you and I'm gonna harden his heart. Boom, that happens. Uh, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand against Egypt and I'm gonna do wonders. Boom, we're gonna see that happen. 21, I'll give you favor to the people. You're gonna come back and you're gonna be rich because you're gonna ask for clothes and silver and they're gonna have it. Boom, all these things. Why? Because God keeps his word. Why? Because he's unchangeable. It's impossible for him to lie. He cannot tell a lie. This is what God is doing. This is what he has done. And the whole reason this is even happening is because God has made a covenant with his people. Back at the end of chapter two, I read it at the start. He says, I will remember my covenant. It's not that God forgot his covenant. He's been like, oh, it's been 400 years. I forgot about that thing. No, it's, it's, it's language to help us understand that he's, he hasn't forgotten. He's remembering. He's moving. He's acting. Why? Because he said that um, and you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And this is what I'm doing. I'm creating a people for my name that will worship in the way I design. And ultimately, the Messiah will come. And I, I say this, and, and I don't have time to develop this. If you want to talk more about it, I told all the other services. Email me, take me to lunch, and I'll explain this even deeper if you want to talk about it. Um, and you will pay, and I will get steak. Um, the, but that there's, this text is used to justify what's known, especially on college campuses and high school, and it's creeping into church, and you didn't know it, uh, liberation theology that's permeating our churches, which is leading to all sorts of false craziness, where God is always on the side of the oppressed, and God is against the oppressor. That's, that's, it's all over the place. And if you don't know about it, you need to kind of read up on it. And if you're a college student or you're a college professor, you've seen this. This idea that God is always against the oppressor and for the oppressed. And, and is God for the widow and the orphan? And does he care about those who are oppressed? Of course he does. He gives rules in the law how to care for the widow and the orphan, I think. But this text has nothing to do with liberation theology where God is going after the oppressed and going after the oppressor. This, this is the people that God promised way before they were oppressed that they would be oppressed and that he was gonna put his favor on them. Not because Abraham was great or Isaac was great, because God is great. And this, if you, if you side there, then you miss the redemptive plan of God through the nation of Israel and you rob them of what God was doing there. Not to mention there's plenty of oppressed people in this time that God doesn't rescue. But when, you, when you, we buy into that kind of theology, it reduces salvation to an external thing, a deliverance from external oppression and not from sin. God can still deliver you and save you from oppression. He's been doing it for thousands of years. It makes worship contingent on a physical deliverance. Uh, and God is worthy of our worship and our, and our, our faithfulness, even if we are oppressed. In fact, uh, we are probably, as bad as circumstances could be in your life, you deserve a lot worse, according to what Scripture teaches. And it makes righteousness. Here's the biggest thing in this liberation, uh, this movement. It makes righteousness external and corporate. So all you have to do to be righteous is be part of the group that is oppressed. Doesn't matter what you believe. Doesn't matter if it's contrary to scripture. Doesn't matter what it is. As long as you are in the minority and you're oppressed, you are righteous and the oppressor is unrighteous. That is not what the Bible says. I can tell you, Israel and Egypt are both unrighteous. They really are. You're gonna see, yeah, Egypt's bad, but Israel shows their tail too. 
in the coming weeks. This has nothing to do with that. And if we start buying into that, then it just, it just lumps all, of, doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter as long as you're in the minority, as long as you're not this, then you're, then you're righteous. It is not biblical. That's not what's going on here. This is about God keeping his covenant because he is immutable, because he is unchangeable. And he said, I'm gonna bless the nations through Abraham. I'm gonna do it still. And so here's what's going on. Creating a people for my name's sake. He is unchanging. He is holy. He is outside of everything and self-sufficient. He is the only true God. He delights in using his people. He is near. He is the initiator. And here's one last thing as we move to worship. Just a reminder that the Lord is Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord. You can read it on your own time this week, but this is great interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in John chapter eight. It's words you read and try to put yourself in the story. It's, I think it's funny. It's, uh, they're so mad at Jesus. They are so mad. They're like, you're a Samaritan, which is silly to us. We're like, that's the dumbest insult I ever heard. But apparently that's a pretty big insult for uh, back then. You have a demon. And there's this back and forth with the Pharisees are like, we're our father is father Abraham. And Jesus is like, no, it's not. If Abraham was your father, you would do what, what I do. They're like, well, our father is God. He said, no, your father's the devil. And that makes him super mad. And so there's this, this great going back and forth. And then Jesus says, he kind of, his mic drop statement. He says, your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. Your father. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. And you say you've seen Abraham? Jesus said, truly, truly. This is his way of saying, listen to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am Yahweh. It's not I was, I am. And man, they are so hot. They pick up stones. They're like ready to throw at him. And he hides himself from him because it's not his appointed time to die. He's gonna die, but not at that point. But he is claiming right there to be the God Yahweh. He is the one who speaks from the burning bush. It is Jesus Jesus is the one who initiates, who moves towards us. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will dine with him and he with me. Jesus is the one who is holy. What do all the demons say when they encounter him? We know who you are, the holy one of God. We know who you are, right? He is the one that is compassionate and intimate. He says, no longer do I call you servants, I call you my friend. He's the one who wants to use you as his body, the church, as his bride. He says, as the father sent me, now I'm sending you. He is the only true God. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. No one comes to the father but through him. He is the one who is unchangeable. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one who is self-sufficient. He is the one who upholds the universe with his right hand. He is Lord. He is Jesus. And at his name, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess to the glory of God, the father. He is the one who came. He is the one who died. He is the one who rose. He is the one who is coming again. He is Lord. He's Lord. And let me close with, again, Lewis captures the idea so great. After Shasta has seen that which is terrible, but yet beautiful, his response is this in, in the horse and his boy. He says, after one glance at the lion's face, he, Shasta, slipped out of the saddle and fell at its feet. He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything. And he knew 
he didn't need to say anything. It's just a great picture of just awe. And as we uh, just think about that, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. And if you're a follower of Jesus, man, we invite you to partake with us, this, and whether you're a member or not, uh, because this, this is a perfect picture even in this kind of COVID community cup here, this is a picture of just really that image of fire, of that invitation, but at the same time, that, that holiness. Why? Because this is a picture of God's wrath and justice being satisfied. And it's an invitation for us into that, right? It's an invitation that you would celebrate that God's wrath was satisfied that God is both just and the justifier uh, because he took our place on Calvary. And so let me read and remind us in 1 Corinthians what Paul says. I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, his bread that pictures his body which was crushed for you, his body which was pierced for my transgressions. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. In your place, as your substitute, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Writer Hebrews makes it clear, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's just wrath. There's alienation. There's separation from God for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so he, the Lamb of God, took away the sin of the world. He, the sinless Son of God, made your payment, satisfied the wrath of God, so that now you don't have to fear the fire. You can draw near with humbleness and all but you can draw near. And so he says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Will you stand and pray with me as we sing? Father, I thank you for the revelation of who you are, just a little piece of those, uh, those things that you've chosen to show us that you are holy, that you are near, that you are uh, unchanging, that you are uh, the initiator, that you are Lord. May we be a church that grasps them and knows you well in Christ's name.